We're up to mitzvah number 115. This is the first mitzvah of the book of Leviticus. Of course, the book of Leviticus, it's also called in Jewish literature, it's called Torah's Kohanim, the Torah of the priests, because the majority of the book deals with laws of sacrifices and other themes that really relate to the priestly class. And the first mitzvah that we're going to encounter is the first of many mitzvahs of its kind, and this is the mitzvah of the Ola sacrifice. The book begins talking about the person bringing a sacrifice, and there are different types of sacrifices. And the first mitzvah that it, uh, it covers, and the first sacrifice that is featured in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1, is an Ola, which is translated as an elevation offering. But I thought it would be appropriate and worthwhile before we get into the specifics of the Ola sacrifice to talk about sacrifices in general, general introduction to sacrifice. We spoke about this in the past. I think it's very important to revisit as we begin Leviticus. Now, it's no secret that the concept of animal sacrifices is very strange for us to hear. To modern sensibilities, to modern ears, it sounds like a very strange and unusual thing to take an animal, perfectly healthy animal. In fact, it has to be perfectly healthy. It has to be free of any blemishes and and to kill it, really, to slaughter it. And then to process this animal in a way that you're elevating it on top of the altar as some sort of offering, a sacrifice to God. There are a lot of things in the Torah, of course, we don't understand. And there are a lot of things that are very mysterious to us. And there are laws that seem to be maybe a bit outdated or antiquated or primitive. Even people would say barbaric or cruel. And it's important for us to understand it. Is there something that we can process, that we can understand, that we can rationalize about this mess of what it is really all about? When we talk about Messiah, of course, we believe that the world as it's currently oriented, it's not going to be like this forever. Things are going to change. And we believe in a very important change that's going to happen with the arrival of Messiah, which is a certain change in how the world's going to operate. And part of the Messianic age is the building of the temple and the restoration of the Davidic monarchy and the implementation of Torah law over the land of Israel. And part of that is the restoration of sacrifices, which includes regular sacrifices, the morning tamid sacrifice, the afternoon tamid sacrifice, and then there are communal sacrifices and personal sacrifices and voluntary sacrifices and obligatory sacrifices. And there's a whole suite, a whole bevy of different sacrifices. And we believe, and we've been talking about it in our prayers and praying for it and beseeching God to bring this about, we've been doing that for years, for millennia. And to say, and we also believe that Messiah could come at any moment, but we have to understand that means that we're talking about the restoration of sacrifices, animal sacrifices. And therefore, I thought it would be appropriate to try to understand the subject in general. Now, the verse tells us that the objective just, just the actual words of the verse is reach nicholach. It's a pleasant aroma to God. 
you bring a sacrifice, there's an aroma, and that's a pleasant aroma to God. Of course, we are already trained. We know not to read such things. Literally, of course, God doesn't smell any sort of corporeal qualities to God. We don't do that. So what does it mean, a pleasant aroma to God? So Rashi tells us, God's happy, so to speak. He's pleased with us, so to speak, because we listened to him. But that's the verse, and that's what Rashi says. And I want to kind of do a little survey of what the other sages say about this subject, because I think once we're done with it, once we have this introduction, this general introduction to sacrifices, in the end, it will actually make a lot of sense and it will be much more palatable even to us with our modern sensibilities. So the first source I like to look at when trying to understand sacrifices is the verse in Devarim chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. It's talking about a person having a craving for meat. They want meat. They have a craving. And they happen to live far away from Jerusalem. Is it okay for someone to have some meat? And the verse tells us, yeah, of course. You're allowed to have meat, even if you're far away from Jerusalem. Take one of your livestock, one of your sheep that God gave you, and slaughter it as I instructed, and you can eat as much as you want to your heart's content. Now, if you read this verse or these verses, first of all, it's important to note that this verse is actually a proof in the written Torah for the existence of the oral Torah. Why? Because the verse tells us that we have to slaughter the animal as I instructed you. Now, if you look throughout the whole Torah, from the first word of Genesis to the final word of Deuteronomy, there are no instructions. But the verse says, as I instructed you. So the verse is telling us there's an instruction that's not featured in writing. Because it's just not. So there is evidence in the written Torah for the existence of the oral Torah. So that's just a side point. But the verse is talking about the consumption of meat. What kind of meat? Just meat when you have a craving, you have a desire for some steak. Which for most of us, that's something that we can relate to. But you happen to be far from Jerusalem. The Almighty expanded your territory and you're not in Jerusalem. It's okay. You can take one of your animal, one of your livestock, one of your sheep and slaughter it as I instructed you. And you could eat to your heart's content wherever you may be. And the question is obvious. Why does the Torah present the consumption of meat, which is something that happens all the time, right? It's what's for dinner. It happens all the time. Why is that portrayed when the Torah is telling us about the consumption of meat? It's not a sacrifice. It's not a holy meat. It's ordinary dinner. The Torah positions it, the Torah presents it as something that only happens or that's only germane, it's only pertinent when God expands our territory and we really want to have meat, but we're far from Jerusalem. What's the connection of us being distant from Jerusalem 
and us wanting to have meat. What about when we're in Jerusalem and we want to stay at dinner? If you read these verses, you will come to realize that the Torah views the consumption of meat in Jerusalem as something that would invariably be done as a sacrifice. But when you're far from Jerusalem and you want to have meat, you don't have to travel for three days to Jerusalem to bring a sacrifice. You can also eat by sacrifice or by slaughtering the animal far away from Jerusalem. You can also eat ordinary meat if you're far away. But the default status, if you're in Jerusalem or you're in the environments of Jerusalem, the default status of consumption of meat is that it's done as a sacrifice. And therefore, if you desire food and you happen to be a thousand miles away or it's inconvenient for you to get to Jerusalem, it's okay. There's another way to do it. But the default status is when you're going to consume meat or you have a craving for meat, do it as a sacrifice. So I think what this is telling us is that on a basic level, the consumption of meat, which is something which is very ordinary for us, for most of us, that was always linked when possible with offering of a sacrifice. So I would venture that the majority of sacrifices in Jerusalem were just people having dinner. But the philosophy is the Almighty wants us to have a connection with Him. And He wants us to imbue the entirety of our lives with holiness. Everything should be elevated. And therefore, don't just eat meat because you want to eat meat. It's okay to eat meat because you want to eat meat have a little dose of holiness in everything that you do. Even something as ordinary, as mundane, as having dinner, infuse it with holiness. You could also bring it as a sacrifice. And part of the sacrifice is, you know, again, there's many different types of sacrifice, but part of sacrifices, in many cases, have a portion of the meat to go to the Kohen, a portion of the meat on the altar, and a portion of the meat goes to the owner. So you have the ability to have your steak and to make it a mitzvah. What this gets to is a general philosophy that we have in every area of our lives. We don't have this separation, so to speak, of shul and state. We don't have the separation of like, oh, I have my holy life. Let me put on my my religion cap, my spiritual cap. Now it's time for me to... Be involved with God. Be involved with my soul. And then once I leave shul, I take that cap off and I have my regular ordinary life. Every part of my life should be infused and imbued with holiness. Even the parts that you would not typically imagine are very holy. Before we consume any food, we're trained to make a blessing. Now, eating food is something that all mammals do. Everyone does it. Why is there a blessing for that? You know, if you're shaking your lulav, you're sitting in your sukkah, even if you're eating matzah, you're doing a mitzvah, you'll be hearing the shofar, that's a mitzvah. You got to do a blessing for that. Why is there a blessing for eating a sandwich? The same principle applies. The Almighty is instructing us not to just have an area of our lives that is religion, that is holiness, that is, oh, our relationship to God, let me go there now. That should infuse and permeate every part of our lives. Oh, you're having dinner? Well, God's part of this as well. You have 
any sort of experience, there is a way to inject holiness into it. The Talmud, in fact, tells us that even marital relations between husband and wife, when done properly, the Shekhinah is between them. The Almighty is present. It's a holy act. There's no part of our lives that's completely divorced from God. The Torah tells us, you know, how to shower, how to go to the bathroom. Every part of our lives can be infused with holiness. And thus, on a very basic level, sacrifices can be explained, or at least certain sections of sacrifices can be explained in this fashion. You're eating meat. You have a craving for meat, like many people do. Inject it with the mitzvah. So that's, I think, a very nice way to understand the subject, or at least part of the subject. But going more specifically, you know, what's the meaning behind the sacrifice? It's not just a way to inject God into your burger or your lamb chops. All the commentaries discuss the deeper meaning of this mitzvah, and I want to go through some of them. Not all of them, but some of them. So first of all, the Rambam tells us, in the laws of me'ila, which is the laws of infringing upon holiness, he tells us all sacrifices, all of them, they are included in the category of mitzvot called chukim, chukim or chok. A chok is a kind or a class of mitzvot whose reasoning is above human intelligence. And he quotes the teaching from our sages, the teachings of our sages say that because of sacrifices, the world endures. And he explains it in this light. Because when you do a mitzvah that makes sense to you, well, maybe you would do it even if God did not tell you to do that. But when you do a mitzvah that makes no sense to you, then you are directly and overtly saying that I'm behaving in a way because of God. And that experience of doing something that makes no sense to you, but doing it nonetheless, that's what ensures the world's continuity. He tells us when the verse talks about the mitzvos, the various types of mitzvos, and the life and the vitality that they bestow upon a person, the first thing it says so it starts off with the chukim, with the mitzvahs that make no sense to us. And then it talks about the mishpatim, the mitzvahs that make sense to us. It's so important. So the Ram is telling us, yeah, does it make sense to you? That's by design. That's by design. So if you say, well, sacrifices, it doesn't make any sense. The Rambam would say, would shake your hand and say, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome. I think this is an easy fallback to the whole subject in general, is that we can accept the fact that there are things that the Almighty tells us to do that don't make sense to us, and that's okay. And that's okay. I would even venture to say, you know, when, Ra- when Rashi tells us that it's a pleasant aroma to God, and the reason why it's a pleasant aroma to God is because you did my will, maybe what Rashi is invoking is this idea. The Almighty's happy because you did his will. Well, every mitzvah, you're doing his will. But this mitzvah in particular, you're doing God's will, and it's completely God's will because for us, it is, in fact, something that makes no sense. So that's one approach that we can take. 
Now, the Ramam elsewhere, he says a few other reasons as to why we have the mitzvahs, the various mitzvahs of sacrifices. In their guide to the perplexed, he talks about this at length, and he offers a variety of explanations. One of them, he says, is actually very interesting. He says that in antiquity, the way people worshipped was with the sacrifices of animals. And therefore, when the Almighty gave us Torah, he didn't change the means by which we offered a deity our allegiance, our affiliation, our subjugation. Rather, he just changed the deity itself from idols to God himself. And therefore, the, the ways of worshiping, that's what had been, that, that, those are the ways that had become accepted as means of worshiping. And God says, okay, we could, we could have a, a way to channel that thing that you always did when you were an idol worshiper, channel that to God. Which is a very controversial opinion because, you know, like the Ramban asks a series of questions on that. One of them being like, well, Noah offered a sacrifice when there's no more idolaters. So if sacrifices are just a means for having a kosher outlet, so to speak, for your existing habit, when there's no existing habit, why would you offer a sacrifice? But that's only one of the Rambam's other explanations. Elsewhere, the Rambam says almost the, almost the opposite idea. He says that other nations, other people, other religions, they would worship animals. The Egyptians and the Chaldeans, other people that the Jewish people lived in their midst, they would worship animals. And he says that the Egyptians would worship the sheep and the Chaldeans would worship demons who appeared in the form of goats. And he says, even today, the people of India, they would never slaughter any livestock, any cows. I guess it goes back to then. Apparently, I think it's still true today. And therefore, the Almighty says to us, oh, you see all these nations that they worship these animals? You take those same animals and you slaughter them for me. Take, so to speak, those sacred cows, quite literally, those things that your neighbors are deifying, take that and slaughter it for God and demonstrate that those beliefs are wrong and are flawed and are disastrous and dangerous. And he gives the example, he says, any illness, you have to fix it with the opposite of it. And therefore, if there's an illness of idolatry, you have to go in the complete opposite direction and negate it completely. A few more explanations that our sages tell us. The Ramban himself, he offers what is probably the most, I guess, consensus or the most widely accepted understanding of this subject. And that is that sacrifices is a form of repentance. In a certain belief that any time we mutiny, we rebel against God, we 
right away lose our rights to live. But the Almighty, in His benevolence, He offers us some degree of clemency, some degree of expiation. And the form of, or the idea of sacrifices, is a way to kind of get us to repent and to realize that really we're supposed to be executed. And the way he couches it, he says that, you know, our ability to act is a certain fusion of our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And the whole process of offering the sacrifice is a way to kind of recognize the mistakes that we made and try to improve our our ways. And you take your hands and you place them atop the sacrifice. And your hands, of course, correspond to your deeds. And you offer a confession with your mouth, and that corresponds to your words. And the innards of the animal and the kidneys of the animals, which in Jewish philosophy and literature corresponds to our thoughts and our drives, our desires, we burn that on the fire to symbolize that the three components of our behavior that led us down a bad path, we made mistakes and we want to improve them. And we take the blood of the sacrifice and we throw it, we sprinkle it atop the altar. And that's there to evoke very powerful thoughts of repentance. Because when we, this is the words of the Ramban, when we sin against our God, with our body, with our soul, what is fitting to happen to us is that our blood be spilled. If not for the Almighty's kindness that he takes, he takes an exchange, he takes something to swap, so to speak, our identity upon, and instead of us, God forbid, being taken away, it's the animal that's going to be taken away. And its blood is really standing in the place of my blood, and its soul is standing in the place of my soul. And all of its limbs are standing in place of my limbs. And then we take part of the sacrifices and we offer it to the Kohanim, to the righteous people. Maybe they'll pray for us. Maybe they'll help us. They'll help guide us out of our quagmire. That's the theory of all sacrifices, says Ramban. It's a way to really come to the realization of the imperative of repentance and to recognize the mistakes that we may have made. And then he says, well, what about the daily sacrifice? You know, if you have bring a sacrifice you did a sin, well, it makes sense to talk about repentance. But a daily sacrifice every single day, what would be the meaning behind that? And he explains, well, that's a communal sacrifice. Every day there's someone who needs some degree of repentance. And therefore, every day we need to bring some sacrifice to help the community arrive at repentance and cleansing. Now, there are, I must attest, there are more explanations about the theory behind sacrifices and the reasons why we have them in general. The idea of taking the animal and elevating it to heaven and creating a certain connection between the material, physical world and the world on high. But I think a good way to, to so to speak, put the subject in a box, we have the, Ram, we have the Rambam who tells us it's beyond human intelligence. 
So that's a way for us to just say, okay, it doesn't make sense to us, but the Almighty says you, you'll uphold the world if you do it because you're doing it for one purpose, and that is because you want to fulfill the will of God. That's a way we could always, kind of the bottom line, we could always rely upon whenever we're dealing with this subject because we're going to talk a lot more about it. But then we have also the Ramban who says that it's really about a way to achieve a certain degree of sobriety of what we're living for and what mistakes we may have made and coming through the process of the sacrifice to repentance and restoration of our of our purity. So that's a way to talk about sacrifices in general. But our mitzvah, mitzvah number 115, talks about the specific sacrifice of an ola. Now, there are many types of situations that you would offer an ola sacrifice, but this mitzvah deals not with the, I guess, the various reasons why you would have to bring an ola and the various ola offerings, but just the subject of an elevation ola offering in general. Now, what makes this kind of offering unique is that no part of it is eaten. The animal is burned in its entirety. With the exception of the hides that go to the coin, everything else is burned. Now, some Ola sacrifices are voluntary. Some are obligatory. Some are individual and some are communal. So, for example, we mentioned the twice daily tumid offerings, the one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Those were Ola's. Those were this type of sacrifice. None of it was eaten but that is a communal and obligatory version of this sacrifice. But there are, there are voluntary Ola sacrifices for any reason. If someone wants to bring a sacrifice, they can bring an Ola sacrifice. Why would someone want to bring specifically this type of sacrifice? So our sages tell us that if someone has, let's say, a sinful thought that was never consummated with an action, the way to kind of fits the blemish, so to speak, that was created by having a sinful thought is via an Ola sacrifice. But in addition, any mitzvah that someone may have violated that doesn't have a designated sacrifice associated with it, if someone wants to bring a sacrifice to atone for their violation of that mitzvah or their non-fulfillment of that mitzvah, they would bring an Ola sacrifice. Now, the way that an ola is actually processed, it is slaughtered in the temple courtyard. And there are many steps needed to fully process an an ola, but the actual slaughtering of the animal can actually be done by a non-kohen. It could be done by an ordinary Jew. But once the sacrifice is slaughtered, everything that happens thenceforth can be done only by a Kohen, the Kohen would catch the blood, the Kohen would walk over to the altar and sprinkle it on the altar, and of course there are many details, there's books of Talmud really about this, but we're just trying to cover the, the basics. Then they would, they would skin the animal and separate it to its parts, if it was a small animal, because the Ola can be done for a variety of different animals. If it's a smaller animal, there were hooks in the temple upon which they would, they would hang the, the body of the animal and separate it. And the larger animals, like the, the bovines, the bulls, were um, separated on the temple floor. And they would remove the innards, 
and the innards were washed and cleaned, and they would remove the sciatic nerve. So they have all the animals now in its parts, and they would bring it on top of the altar. They would walk up the ramp uh, to the top of the altar, and they would burn it on the pyre atop the altar. Now, every day, of course, there were, at a minimum, two Ola sacrifices. One in the morning. The first sacrifice was always the morning Tamid Ola sacrifice. And the final sacrifice in the late afternoon was always the afternoon Tamid sacrifice. And this was all done, all these various parts were done by Kohanim. Specifically, it has to be a Kohen who does it. And it's interesting, the mission tells us that they would have to draw lots. There, was, there would be like a lottery every day to see which Kohen, because there's a lot of Kohanim there, but ever, ever wants to do it, because that's what they're hired to do. That's what they're doing in the temple. So which Kohen merited to do which part of the process? There was a lottery system. But again, we have the animal parts, and it's all brought atop of the altar. What about the hair and the wool and the bones and the sinews and the horns and the hooves, the various other parts of the animal? So if they are attached to the animal, then they would be burned with it. If they are severed, then they would not be able to be elevated on their own. And again, we're going through some of the general components of this, but the details are myriad. There's different kinds of animals and they have different procedures. So for example, a sheep, you need to have six different kohanim to process it. A bull would need 24 kohanim to process it. That's for a communal sacrifice, but for an individual sacrifice, there will be fewer. It can be done even with fewer people. There's also a version of Ola done for birds. But again, there's an entire book of Talmud that deals with sacrifices. And again, the term, the broader term sacrifices really covers an entire order of Mishnah. So one-sixth of the oral Torah can really broadly be classified as covering sacrifices. There's a lot there. But this is the general, I guess, introduction and the first mitzvah that we see about uh, about this, and that is the Ola offering. And as we mentioned at the top, please, God, Messiah comes, they rebuild the temple, and this is going to be restored. And maybe it sounds foreign to us now, but if we understand what is actually happening here and the benefit of these sacrifices and these offerings. And I think, please God, if we're meritorious enough to witness it, it'll make a lot more sense, I am sure. Today we don't have sacrifices, of course. We have prayer, we have repentance, we have other things, of course, that stand in their place. But we hope, please God, to merit, to be able to bring sacrifices and to even eat from the sacrifices that we bring to Jerusalem. May we all merit to see that day. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Send me an email with your comments, your questions, and your feedback.